Welcome to It's All in Your Head podcast, episode four, dealing with grief and loss. I'm Michelle Walker, and I'm here with Tara Ray. Tara, let's talk a little bit about grief and loss. What we both know is the expert on this was Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and her books. One was on grief and grieving, and the other one was on death and dying. So we know about those stages of grief, right? Mm -hmm. So something that I'll talk about those stages of grief and what we both know is that those stages aren't linear. The five stages of grief are a way of describing how people may react to a loss. Psychiatrist Elizabeth Kubler-Ross first outlined the stages of grief in the 1960s. She originally used the stages to describe how she saw patients reacting to their own terminal diagnosis. Today we acknowledge these stages as common feelings anyone may experience when grieving any kind of loss, including the death of a loved one. Denial is a refusal to believe the loss is real. The brain protects itself until it has more time to absorb and process difficult news. Anger may come after we admit the loss actually happened. This emotion can be directed at any number of targets. It may range anywhere from frustration to fury. During the bargaining stage, we attempt to strike a deal with ourselves or a higher power to cope with our pain. Guilt is also common during this stage as we dwell on past events searching for things we could have done differently. The deep sadness of depression sets in when we realize the loss has really happened and our life is forever changed. This kind of depression is a natural response for most people experiencing loss. It is not a sign of mental illness. Reaching the stage of acceptance doesn't mean our grief is over. We understand the loss has happened, and we can't change it. Accepting this doesn't mean we feel good about it. If you're grieving, you may recognize some of these feelings, but you may not be experiencing them in any particular order. The truth is, grief does not always follow a specific path. Your journey might feel more like you're all over the place, and that's okay. The five stages of grief aren't directions. They're just a starting point to help you understand some of what you might be feeling as you go through a period of serious change in your life. You don't just kind of go through them one at a time, piece by piece, step at a time. But what they are is we start out in kind of a denial. Our brain protects itself that way by feeling like that person we love is just going to walk right back in the door. We're just sure of it. They're just going to show up. And then once our brain gets through that denial stage, and sometimes it takes a few months, some time passes, and all of a sudden one day we realize, oh my gosh, this person is just never coming back. And then we get angry. Mm -hmm. And the anger shows up in various ways. 
and we'll talk a little bit more about that too. And then we start thinking things like, well, what if I had just done this? Or what if I had just done that? Maybe this wouldn't have happened. If only this, if only I had said that to them before they died, if only this had happened. We call that the bargaining stage. Mm -hmm. And then we get profoundly depressed. And those stages can come and go and come and go and come and go. We get angry, we start bargaining with things, we get depressed, and those come and go. And then at some point in time, we get to a stage of acceptance, and that doesn't stay even. We go back and forth into anger, into bargaining, sometimes even back into denial. And they kind of just kind of go around and around, but pretty much those five stages manifest themselves over and over, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think the thing to remember, because I know people hear all kinds of things and we're going to get into those things in depth. But I think that when people get to the stage of acceptance, they're just accepting the fact that that person probably will never come back or will never come back. But it doesn't mean that it's gotten easier. And so we'll talk a little bit more about that in depth. But I think that people think that or they think that after they've lost a loved one, it should get easier. I think that that's just a myth. And I hope that we do a good job today explaining how that's just probably not possible as we go more into this discussion. And I can hear in your voice that there's a death in your life that just never really got easier. Do you wanna talk about that? Well, there are actually several, uh, but the first one for sure uh, the first or the most impactful, I think, is the death of my mom, which both of us share that you lost your mom tragically and mine due to illness after a battle with lung cancer. But it just it never it never gets easier. I remember those things and I'm a person who's more anxious. So I even remember I can feel it in my body, how I felt during the time that she was actually sick and passing away and I can remember conversations just like they were yesterday with her. So even being a clinician, I just, it's not a myth. Death is not a myth. I want us to really be real and talk about that. There's no prescribed way that we should deal with it. There's no pill that makes it feel better. I want us to really be as honest as we can like I said, going into this conversation, I'll try not to be crying because I am a crybaby, but I'll try to hold that together today. Well, you know what? I love it that you're a crybaby. <laughs> I am. And I think, and, and so I think for me, I, that it's just a little bit different than what you went through is that my mother and I didn't have a good relationship because my mother what, had her own mental illness issues and she was an extremely angry person. And oftentimes that anger got taken out on me. We had learned to have kind of a, um, I don't know what you would call it, a peaceful existence far away from each other where we only interacted when we had to at family events and different things like that. And so we had a coexistence, so to speak. And, and we did coexist okay. And I was actually on the phone with her about 20 minutes before she died. and we. Um, just spoke casually, which is all I ever did with her. I had learned over the years not to talk too deeply with my mother. If I had a problem, I didn't really share it with her. 
because she tended to criticize the way that I solved my problems, so I didn't ever tell her about them. And so I just talked to her about casual things like the weather or told her about the kids' accomplishments in school or different things like that. And I had just talked to her very casually and um, she took off and headed uh, down on a, um, she was, my parents owned a chain of truck stops in Idaho and Montana. And she was traveling from Idaho to Montana. So she was going on the freeway and she was too tired to be driving and she fell asleep at the wheel and she rolled the vehicle and she, she died in that accident. So I had been talking to her 20 minutes before that. And when I found out that she died in that accident, it was a, a horrible mixture of relief and sadness and then horrible guilt that I felt relieved that my mother was gone because who feels that way about their mother? And yet at the same time, there was a tension between us that snapped. In other words, the tension was gone and that was the nature of the relief. And, and then that horrible sadness was that there, there was never gonna be any repair of, mm. of damage of things that had happened in our past between the two of us. There was never gonna be any repair of that. And so it was a combination of all of that. And over the next year or years, it was trying to um, just psychologically and emotionally deal with the complexity of all of those emotions and the grief coming from all of that is what I was experiencing. And I hear you saying that because it's interesting. You know, my mother uh, <clears throat> was diagnosed with severe persistent mental illness. So most of my life I spent taking care of her in a sense or being her guardian. <clears throat> but the, the last three months of her life, she, I had her move to the city that I lived in. And what was interesting was she showed such clarity of mind during the last three months of her life. But none of these things that I take as signs that my mom is, you know, sick to the point where she's going to die soon. Like I did, it didn't even register because she had had two prior bouts with lung cancer and beat them both. And now it was back for this third time. And I remember just the time that we got to spend together, the things that we would do. She was in like a rehab type of a facility. So I would go, we would watch TV. We would, I would sneak her in food she wasn't supposed to have. <laughs> I would do all of those things and we just talked. And again, she had never had this much presence of mind or clarity of mind. She would just talk to me about life things that she wanted to happen. So again, I'm just like thinking, wow, I'm finally getting my mom. This is what I'm thinking. After my whole life, not really having her in a present state of mind and just talking and, you know, planning. She, she had planned her own, she had paid for her final arrangements. Like everything, all of that was done years prior. So it wasn't even anything that we were thinking about because it was already done. But just to talk to her and, you know, her give me instructions, that had never happened. Wow. So it was just kind of like a beautiful thing. And I know what you feel like 
when you say, oh, kind of like a, a certain level of relief, I wasn't happy she was gone, but that, that, like that struggle and that crisis that, that crisis feeling, that fight or flight that I lived in, dealing with my mom and her illness and the different things that would happen, that was no longer there. But then that hole of emptiness and sadness was there also. So it was a weird dichotomy of feelings that I went through dealing with my mom, her illness, her extended illness, and then her passing. That unless you've been through a situation like that, it's very hard for other people to understand. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what I'm describing. And then, and then as, as you go through the, as I was going through the bargaining stage of my grief, wondering if I had just stayed on the phone with her a little bit longer, would, would something have been different? You know, maybe I could have prevented something, which of course, you know, you couldn't, she would have just left a little later and maybe it would have happened, you know, a little later or things like that. And, and because I myself suffer from depression when I went through the depressed phase of my mental health issues, I actually became uh, suicidally depressed and it was extremely frightening and had to have a lot of support myself. That didn't happen for a few months down the road. Um, but that was extremely hard for me too, trying to keep myself going as I was working. I had a job. I worked at a uh, wilderness treatment program, um, doing an internship, uh, trying to get finish my degree at the time, and trying to keep myself going. I also was a single mom trying to support my children who they were very close to their grandmother. She was a different grandmother than she was a mother. And I loved that about her. She had gotten a lot of her mental health issues under control, um, you know, as she got older. And so she was a much different grandmother than she was a mother. And so she was closer to my children in a different way. And so I watched my children one by one uh, the denial thing does break. You can kind of watch it break and one by one watch my children as they would call and say, Oh my gosh, I just realized grandma's never coming back. Mm -hmm. You know, and one by one, each of my children have that denial break and I have five of them. So it was kind of happening. And my, um, I had one grandson who was three at the time, but I had a granddaughter born just six months after she died and i remember getting the word that my granddaughter had just been born and i picked up the telephone and dialed my mother to tell her that the grand my grandbaby had just been born and and it just didn't hit me for a few seconds oh my gosh i can't tell my mother that our granddaughter's been born you know oh i'm gonna cry <laughs> i'm gonna cry thank you for joining us again for it's all in your head podcast this is episode four we're talking about dealing with grief and loss i'm here with michelle walker and i am tara ray that one that one was so hard i, I remember pulling over i was in the car and i remember pulling over and just sobbing because it was just such a, a moment that it was just so real that i couldn't tell my mother that my granddaughter had been born you know and those and moments and i hear you because it, it's the same it's it's like the same it's those things that we think of as moms and then becoming grandmothers that we want to share with our moms and they're not here. 
I want to be able to tell my mom, I know the feeling that you felt when you hold, when you held my son, right? I can't do that because she's not here. And I, I remember just because my mom went through hospice, oh gosh, people couldn't, you wouldn't have been able to tell I was a therapist. I was so anxious. My anxiety had gone through the roof to the point where my hair fell out. Oh. When the phone would ring, I would jump. It would just, it, everything was a visceral reaction. And I remember at one point, my husband taking the phone, like, no, this, you know, this can't happen. If, if something needs to be told to you, I will pass on the message because I was so anxious and I still had to function because it wasn't like, I knew my mom was passing away. I knew that. And it just, I know most people swear by hospice. I did not have a good experience with hospice, but I think just me being a more anxious person added to it. And they would call you and give you updates. Like, I remember the time the nurse called me and said, I think I heard the death rattle. I told that woman, I said, um, don't call me again. Call my brother. If it's something that I need to know, he will pass that information on to me. And I felt myself getting, so I felt myself starting to go through these stages of grief while my mom was still living. And I hit anger real quick. I think anger was the first stage that I experienced because I couldn't, I didn't feel like I could deny. It was like two people standing there. I was having kind of like this out of body experience. The emotional part of me was like catatonic. And then the business part of me was moving and doing the things that I needed to do. Right. And, but I didn't like it. I was mad about it. I, I remember I was going to, punch the paleo whatever care doctor in the face because he said something to me about my mom and the nurse even looked at him when he said it and was like oh. I, I just I, I, I could feel the heat rise because he said something like well, what do you remember of your mom I'm thinking he's having a good conversation with me and I talked about how pretty she she, she, you know, how pretty she was and that she was a model and all these things. And then he said, well, she's never going to be that again. Ooh. Man, when I tell you, this man backed out of the room <laughs> that we were meeting in because I think he could see that he had said the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. And it was just that. I was not nice to the people at the hospice. I can admit it. I can't admit it. I didn't send them no thank you cards after she had passed. You know, the things people do. I was not happy with the whole process. I didn't do any of that. And I remember I got a package in the mail one day, and it was all of the things that my mom had when she went into the hospital. So it was things like her watch and different things like that. She had a watch that I bought her that she never took off. And she, like, it was weird because she's like, I need a watch but I want you to buy me a Timex. It wasn't even like anything expensive, but that's what she wanted. So whenever she would give me a request like that, I would make sure that I would get the things that she wanted. And when I got the box in the mail for a brief minute, I was like, 
I should maybe drop these people a thank you line. Then I was like, no, I'm still mad at them. <laughs> I'm not giving them anything. But it was just uh, like the out of, like I said, the out of body experience. I don't know how else to describe it. You know, there was part of me who couldn't function and then the other part of me that had to function. So I just made it work. Well, one of the things that I thought was worth mentioning is just the fact that we don't have very good grieving rituals in our American culture, you know, because other cultures have much better uh, grieving rituals. You know, we do a funeral and then we all go back to work and we mm -hmm. just kind of forget it. There's no time off really allowed. There's no nothing. Three days. Three days. That's it. If it's know? a, if it's a close family member. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah, it's just nothing, but there's other things in other cultures. And I kind of really like what the Asian cultures do. They have these rituals where for the first eight days after someone passes away every evening for an hour, the person will, uh, seclude themselves and they spend an hour grieving and just thinking about the future that they won't have with that person. Mm -hmm. So they do that for an hour every single day for the first eight days. And then after that, they do it um, for whatever period of time is needed, but they'll do it periodically for every evening. So it becomes like a ritual that they do and they do it for as long as they need. Um, for as often as they need and so it would be one of those things where um, tonight um, I'm going to be doing my grieving or whatever and everybody around them would be going oh okay tonight's a grieving night you know and it's just allowed and expected and they do it for as long as necessary but nothing like that happens in our culture nor is it expected and I always tell people that they can create their own grieving ritual if they need to. And I think that it's just that we're so uncomfortable with death in this country. We don't really look at it like, okay, it's a part of the process. None of us do. And because we're so uncomfortable with it, I think that the processes and procedures that we put into place kind of reinforce that discomfort. You know, I, I mean, nobody cares that it's a natural part of life. We feel what we feel and we're not taught well how to deal with it. And I'm thankful for the stages of grief. That gives us a guideline, but it doesn't give us a plan or a process. And so that just brings me to telling people that the way in which you grieve is very personal to you. Just like you're saying, come up with your own grieving ritual that Sometimes the advice that people gives us is horrible advice. Some of the things that are kind of the canned things that we say or that we hear are really not good to say. And it's really bad, I think, in the religious community, hearing, oh, she's in a better place. I don't want to hear that. I really don't, especially at the time in which I'm suffering through the grief process. You, at the beginning stages, she's in a better place. She's not suffering anymore. She, or I'm trying to think of all the other stuff. You know the things that people say right. that don't really make you feel better. It makes them feel better. And just getting comfortable asking the person who is grieving what they need from you. 
Because mm -hmm. what if they say, all I want is some silence. All I want is to know that you support me. That should be allowed. People who tell people things like, you should, you should be over it by now. That is horrible. Because then what you also do is you remove your support from the person, whether you want to or not. And you reinforce this kind of silence so that they won't share what they're dealing with. Mm -hmm. Because you said something that you didn't even know was offensive. Yeah, and I like that idea of asking people what it is that you want from me or what you need from me. And that works best. And even we shared that maybe just saying, you know, I'm sorry for your loss is okay. Mm -hmm. Because you really are sorry for their loss. And not trying to add a platitude in there that is insincere or unproductive. I, I remember because my mother, she passed away on December 23rd. And people would say, oh, I'm so sorry. And it's two days before Christmas. And I remember thinking, I don't care if it was July 4th. It doesn't matter the day. The impact on my life is the same. I no longer have my mind. So that was not something that, I mean, the day, okay. She could have died on Christmas. And I would have felt the same way that I felt. I didn't need anyone to come and tell me, oh, that must be so sad. It happened two days before Christmas. No, it happened, period. And it was something that I did not want to happen. There was nothing, it was nothing I could prepare for. I remember in hospice, like I said, this wasn't a good experience for me because I had to do all of these things you would typically do after the person passes away. I had to go while she was still living and sign for her body to be released. Uh, I had to, oh gosh, just all of those things. I think I, I don't remember when I signed the death certificate thing. I think that might've been before she passed away too, because I never went back to the hospice house. I went once or twice while she was there, but just all of those things. It's none of it is, it, none of it is anything you can prepare for. I don't care what anybody says period. So just the fact that you can just be honest and I own it. I own that I was not a nice person during that time. I don't apologize for it. It was my story to tell. If I offended you during that time, I'm not even sorry. I just know. So it was all of that. And I remember going when I had to sign the papers because I had already told the nurse off and told her not to call me anymore. So when I got there, she actually asked me what I did for a living. I said, believe it or not, I'm a therapist. And she said, well, well, at least you know what you can and can't handle. I said, absolutely. Because I, I know I wasn't nice. I know for a fact I was not nice. But like I said, I, I wasn't. It was my time to be how I wanted to be. And I, I'm, and I still don't apologize, like I said. Maybe that's not nice, but it's the truth of how it was and how I was during that time. Well, people handle grief just differently. And my, my dad surprisingly was really angry right off the bat when he found out what happened to her, even before the, because it, she, it happened in Montana because she was on her way to Montana. And so it, it was Montana state troopers were driving to Idaho to let him know. And before they, 
he was really, really angry. And when they pulled into the driveway, he was mad at them and told them to leave. So he's shouting at them, yelling at them, telling them to get off of his property, which he wouldn't, he wouldn't think that would be his reaction, but that's how he reacted to the whole thing. And then in the days that followed, my mother had a kind of a, a little bit of a shopping addiction. We talked a little bit about that on the last podcast and she would buy what she thought were cute clothing and just store them in closets in the house. And anytime that my kids came to stay, they, they got to go through her closets. And if there was anything cute that fit them, they had to model it for my mom. And she, you know, like a little fashion show and then they got to keep it. And so there were all kinds of stuff, even clothing from when I was a kid that some of it she would still keep, like old rabbit fur coats and stuff from back in the 80s and stuff. <laughs> and Yeah, one of it was mine. And she uh, sometimes you would be trying on some of the coats and whatever, and you would reach in the pocket and there would be these wads of $100 bills with a rubber band around it. And because my mother was always terrified of, of losing all of their money. Okay, this is because my parents came from poverty, right? So this was what she would do. She would hide wads of money in the pockets of the coats or wherever she would hide money at. because She was terrified, I guess, that the economy was going to crash. I don't know what she was terrified of, but she'd say, oh, just put that back. That's just my stash or whatever, you know. So <laughs> my so my dad in his anger was taking all of those clothes out of those closets and putting them in a trailer and taking them to the dump. He was just extremely angry. And so he was just going back and forth to the dump, taking piles and piles of clothing. And my sister discovered what he was doing and said, dad, you know, what are you doing? And he said, I, you know, your mom didn't need to buy all this stuff anyway. And most of it still had tags on it. You know, it's pretty new stuff. And she stopped him you know and said we might want you know some of that stuff and then she told him about all the money that was probably hidden in pockets you know but unfortunately he had thrown away most of the coats and things that had probably had wads of money hidden in the pockets and so he'd probably thrown away who knows how much money he'd probably thrown just thrown away in the dump and so but that was his reaction was for some reason he was extremely angry, angry enough to just throw away all the stuff, all that stuff that she had bought. I still don't know why. It makes no sense to me even to this day. Welcome to It's All In Your Head podcast, episode four, dealing with grief and loss. I'm Michelle Walker and I'm here with Tara Ray. The other thing I've seen, I think that people don't really know or, or can't explain is how children react to grief. And I know you work a lot with children and what have you seen with children's reactions to grief? Sometimes there's this, especially the, the younger the child, you'll see this, they don't really understand the full concept of death. So when they talk about it, it's very matter of fact. So I know that my grandson lost his great grandmother from his mom his mom's grandmother and he was like nani my grandma died and it's just this matter of fact that he won't understand the complexity of emotions until he's older another thing that i've seen with older children 
they get to, they start to have this kind of trauma reaction that happens because it's a reality that someone was here that they depended on and now that person is gone. Whether or not they understand the full complexity of death or not, they understand the finality of it. And so you'll see them, especially if it's a grandparent that they were close to, you'll see them become more clingy with their actual parents because they have a fear that there might be a time that that parent walks out the door and doesn't come back. And I find the only way to begin to address that is to directly address the death of the person who's now gone, especially if it's a grandparent. And that's hard for a lot of parents because they're still grieving and it's, hard, it's a hard topic for them. So I increase the family sessions when I start seeing that in children. With children who have autism, you'll hear that it, it's, it's definitely a lot harder. And you'll also see the stress and anxiety in them kind of raise up, but it's gonna, it's gonna present itself differently than what happens with children who don't have that level of disability. So it's really complex when you deal with kids. I guess I, that was a long answer to say that. It's very complex when you deal with kids. But many times we forget because children are so resilient that we have to give them a certain level of attention also related to the loss of that person. And there's a diagnosis in the DSM it's just simply uncomplicated bereavement, which means somebody died and it's affecting us. Yeah, DSM, Diagnostic Statistical Manual, right? <laughs> yes, I think that's what I call it. I've called it DSM for so long, I can't remember the full name. But yeah, and you know, I think that something to recognize too is that they'll show up in kids' grades as well. Their grades will drop. And so something that's kind of sad is to get upset with kids because their grades are dropping when in actuality it's a symptom of a problem right you know that that they're grieving over something whatever it is it happens with divorce as well and we'll talk about that more in our episode five when we talk about relationships but interestingly when we talked a little bit at the beginning about elizabeth kubler ross she wrote on grief and grieving as she was helping people with grief and grieving and then she herself developed cancer and wrote her book on death and dying as she was dying of cancer herself which is you know amazing that mm -hmm. she's able to do that and an amazing woman overall and all of her research and the ways that she was able to do it in the course of her lifetime Two books that I would definitely recommend on grief and grieving, on death and dying, both by Elizabeth Kubler Ross. Thank you, everyone, for joining us for It's All in Your Head podcast. This is episode four, and we're discussing grief and loss. I'm Tara Ray, and I'm here with Michelle Walker. Michelle asks, What else can come to mind in dealing with this subject? And I think that just remembering that your grief and loss struggle is very much yours and personal. When you want to assist someone who's struggling, be careful of what you say, and maybe just ask them what they need from you. But in discussing this, what's come to mind also, because I know we've talked about losing our parents, but what happens when 
someone might lose a child. And I think just touching on that briefly is very important. And I know that for parents who have lost children, there's a certain level of guilt that comes up for them that even if there was nothing that they could do, it's still there because they're always wondering what it was they could have done. I think a thing that comes to mind also when parents lose a child, one thing that I do in treatment to help them get ready to get rid of that guilt, because if they can hold on to it, they will hold on to it as long as they, as they can. I allow them to sit in that feeling. I call it touching the stove. How do you know a stove is hot? You know it's hot because you've actually touched it. And once you touch it, you know you do not want to feel that feeling again. So in me allowing them to sit with that feeling and really just quite honestly recognize how much it sucks, it gives them more motivation to do the work to get out of that feeling. Mm -hmm. Because there's nothing you can say to someone when they've lost a child. You can't say, oh, get over it, because that's not possible. But we can talk about the best way to move forward and get through it. Well, you know, the, the interesting thing is that we don't call it committing suicide anymore. We call it died by suicide because it is a, a symptom of a disease. It's a symptom of mental illness. It's something that happens because of mental illness. And having been suicidal throughout the course of my life at times, I just, I guess, want to help people to understand what happens inside the mind. One of the symptoms of a me this mental illness is that there are thoughts that come through the mind so fast, thoughts that aren't my own, that tell me things that aren't something I would say to myself under normal circumstances. And these thoughts become so prolific and so loud that I can't, my own thoughts get drowned out. Uh -huh. And if I believe those thoughts, then I can see where somebody would follow those thoughts and do something that they wouldn't do in their normal state of mind. And so if I could help somebody to understand that, it would be this, that your own thoughts get pushed to the side and these other thoughts that sound just like my own thoughts get very loud and they are thoughts that I would never think in my right mind and if I follow those thoughts, I'm, I'm being duped, I'm being tricked. And, and then if I follow those thoughts, I'm gonna do something that I wouldn't normally do. And so it, I don't know if that's helpful for anybody out there who's had a brother, sister, family member, friend who has died by suicide, that that person was being tricked by their own mind into doing something they wouldn't normally do in a different state of mind. And as sad as that seems, that unfortunately that's what mental illness has done to them. Their own mind has tricked them into doing this. And so if that's helpful, I just want you to understand that it was the disease and it wasn't them or who they are that was speaking in that moment. And so that's why it's called died by suicide. They were killed by their disease. And hopefully that's helpful to any of you out there who are blaming themselves or were thinking that maybe you did something wrong or there was something that you could do 
No, not at all. And I think about that because many times when we have people who come in for treatment after they've had a fam family member die by suicide or also a term they say complete suicide because it's a process that the mind goes through sometimes is that in that <clears throat> it's they feel like the person was selfish you know i know you've heard that before they were selfish they didn't think about other people they didn't know or they didn't care what would happen but I think in explaining that, there's a process that happens in the mind that didn't allow them to be able to fully think that process through. And in the case of children and young people who complete suicide, it is very impossible many times. So there are times that we've hospitalized people for the thoughts, or especially children for the thoughts, because when young people move out, it's usually not planned out the same as you see with adults. It's just something, it's a thought that comes in their mind and they act. And so keeping that in mind, we always assess for, as clinicians, what we call suicidality or suicidal ide ideation so that we know, and there are the different levels. Does the person have the thought? Do they have the thought with means? Do they have the thought with means and a plan? Do they have the thought with, with intent or with means and intent? We're, it's all these different levels that we look at. And based on that is how we decide we want to go forward with treating that person. So that's just something to think about also. Yeah, thank you. So that's important to understand when you're out there and you're, you have a family member who is telling you that they're suicidal. It's important to take that very seriously and to talk to somebody who is a professional and to get the help that that person needs, not to ignore it, and to talk to somebody who is, a pastor is a good person to talk to. If you can talk to a pastor, talk to a professional. There's a suicide hotline, which we're gonna post the number to that so that you have help, you have support to support people around you or yourself if you need it for yourself. And the, another thing that comes to mind, and I guess because I do treat so many children and the different things that I hear from parents or from guardians, like, oh, she's just saying that because she wants attention. So what I say is, do you know how many kids have, have completed suicide because they wanted attention? The outcome is still the same and we need to deal with it in a manner that's more productive and you know, just more productive and more positive whether they want attention or not. Okay, give it to them. I would rather give you attention and plan your funeral. Thank you again for joining us for It's All In Your Head podcast. This has been episode four, where we were dealing with grief and loss. And remember, mental health matters. And if you don't deal with your stuff, it's going to deal with you. Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye.